Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Imagine a company that hides who it works with and where billions of dollars flow around the world, that earns its profits financing a global network containing piracy, porn, fraud, and disinformation, even doing business with figures sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury, including Russian companies that may access and store data about people browsing websites and apps in Ukraine, potentially opening a mechanism for Russian intelligence to target individuals there. A company that tells the public that it doesn't make money from guns, that nevertheless does business with the maker of the AR-15, the weapon used in so many horrific mass killings, including the recent massacre of teachers and students in Uvalde, Texas. Is this some organized crime syndicate or shady offshore shell company? No, it's Google, one of the biggest and most prominent technology companies on the planet. Today, we'll hear from a journalist who has spent years uncovering fraud in the opaque world of digital advertising and media manipulation, who with his colleagues at ProPublica has used a unique investigative approach to uncover just exactly how Google operates in this shadowy realm of deceit and disinformation. I'm Craig Silverman. I'm a national reporter with ProPublica. Well, I thank you for joining me. We're going to spend a little time talking about your reporting On Google over 2022, uh, four particular stories that we'll get into. But I wanted to just, for any of my listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with your career, your background, I think of you as sort of one of the OGs of uh, digital investigations and sort of, you know, really digging into how these big platform companies work, how ad tech works, how uh, the technology works, but also the economics of the ad tech ecosystem. And I also think of you as, someone who's been very kind to share your knowledge and your approach with a variety of my students in the past, as well as the broader journalism community. In your own words, how would you describe your beat? For me, the the beat that has kind of emerged for me, and it's been now almost two decades, which is the crazy thing for me to think about. A friend, Joan Donovan at Harvard, calls me old man disinfo, which is not the nicest nickname I've ever had, but I guess it's kind in the sense of, of that I've been at this for a little while. I think of what I do as really investigating the digital environment, but specifically around media manipulation, the information and uh, ways that we interact and communicate in this new environment of, you know, dominated by big social platforms run by big tech companies, mobile phones, all of the new ways that we're communicating in a much more democratized and open media environment, which has created so many opportunities for more voices, but also creates many more opportunities for manipulation. And so I'm constantly fascinated by the devious and clever uh, ways that people are manipulating uh, this environment, whether it's, you know, on technical levels or just, you know, for spreading false and misleading content, which again is something I've been looking at and investigating for quite some time. I'm kind of an old school media blogger, and that's something that I've carried through now for almost two decades as our media environment has changed dramatically during that time. And I think it's fair to say that you are one of the best at using kind of digital investigative techniques and sort of digging slightly under the under the hood of how some of these technical systems work in order to kind of get at details that other journalists might not 
I mean, that's that's a nice compliment. And I, I what I would say is I'm pretty obsessed with that. I'm constantly obsessed by finding new ways to just kind of pop under the hood and see what's going on, finding new ways to make sense of this massive amount of data uh, as people communicate back and forth. And, and, you know, the minutia of that, like the interactions, the likes, the shares, I have really been fixated on ways of trying to get my arms around the scale of this activity that we're dealing with. Because to me, that is one of the defining challenges and elements of this information environment is just scale. Billions of people are on platforms. The amount of content and interactions happening at any given moment is so big that these companies themselves don't actually, you'll find, have a real handle on what's going on. And that was always an interesting experience for me going back close to a decade ago, doing this kind of reporting and sort of showing, for example, like here's here's the kind of stuff really going viral on Facebook that's you know crazy and false or what have you. And I would realize later that this was kind of news to Facebook as a whole. They weren't really, they didn't have, you know, the tools and the desire to necessarily be tracking things to that extent. And so I just think there's so much to be found. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that these companies have a really good handle on what's going on because the scale is unknowable. Even for them building and operating these systems, they try to build their dashboards, they try to build these internal controls, but the systems are just so big that you know massive things can hide in a small corner. That's a good introduction to these four pieces that you had in ProPublica last year, particularly focused on Google in the second half of last year. There are four headlines we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, the first, June 14th last year with Ruth Talbot. Google says it bans gun ads. It actually makes money from them. On July 1st, Google allowed a sanctioned Russian ad company to harvest user data data for months. Uh, again, with Ruth Talbot, but also uh, Jeff Cow and Anna Klushpies, how Google's ad business funds disinformation around the world, October 29th. Uh, and then most recently, just before the holidays, again with Ruth Talbot, Porn piracy fraud, what lurks inside Google's black box ad empire? You are a very popular person right now, I'm sure, uh, at Google. Uh, we've definitely had some conversations with them. Uh, I, I will give them credit in that, you know, it's it's always a professional interaction. And, and uh, as much as we don't get all of the information responses from them that we'd want, they did engage for the most part on these pieces. But... Yes, that was it was sort of a year of Google's ad business for me and in particular for Ruth Talbot, who is uh, a member of our uh, news apps team. And uh, Jeff Cow, another data journalist, and then Anna Kluspies was a fellow at ProPublica for a few months. She is a, a journalist based in Germany. And, you know, the backstory on the, on the stories was that starting about last spring, and even before that, Ruth and I had been talking kind of about digital ads. And for me, my obsession with digital ads goes back till at least about the end of 2016, when I just kind of woke up and realized not just that, well, you know, Google and Facebook make their money primarily from ads, but realizing the scale of the manipulation and fraud taking place in digital ads. At the end of 2016, there was a New York Times story about a digital fraud scheme that had stolen lots of money by kind of pretending to be outlets, news outlets and getting ads um, when there was no real outlet and just started stealing the money. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. You know, I had been writing about uh, false information and fake news, and it hadn't occurred to me that, you know, you could have entire fake websites that just to earn money. 
And so I started kind of doing stories about digital ad fraud, and it's been a, a good five or close to six years of that. And Ruth and I talked about really wanting to understand these very big, complicated ad systems more and find stories. And when you're talking about digital ads, you have to talk about Google. It is the biggest digital ad business in the world. But, and this is where it's a reporting challenge, it also operates kind of the guts of the system, the stack of ad tech, where if you want to be involved in programmatic advertising, you know, the automated buying and selling of ads, you basically in some way are probably going to be dealing with Google. Whether you are an ad buyer, a brand, whether you are an ad seller, like a publisher, you are probably using some of Google's tools and you are probably using some of Google's tools to meet in the marketplace to buy and sell those ads. And so we decided to really try to focus on Google's ad business and to better understand it and more about, you know, the kind of fraud and uh, stuff that is lurking in it that I think a lot of people avoid digging into because it's super complicated and difficult to parse. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of publisher confidentiality, which seems to be very important to Google's model. Yeah. So Google runs really the world's largest ad network. So if you have a website and you want to get ads on that website, you can apply to be part of Google's ad network and you know they'll, they'll review your site. If it meets all of, all of its requirements, you should be able to just add a little bit of code to your site and start getting ads and start getting, you know, payments from Google for that. And so Google has publicly said that there's, you know, roughly more than 2 million different, you know, websites and potentially apps also that are part of this network. It's a massive network. It's the biggest one in the world for kind of third-party sites and apps, in addition to Google obviously placing ads on its search and all those other things. And the thing that's really unique about it, aside from its size and aside from the fact that it brought in over $30 billion in revenue in 2021, so it's really big money-wise and pays out better than any, pretty much most other ad networks and is available in more countries than any other ad networks. The fact is that Google, if you wanted to know, well, what are the websites and apps that Google actually works with? What are the ones where if you were to buy ads through Google on this network, where might your stuff show up? Google won't tell you. There is no list. And that may not seem surprising, except for the fact that Google actually worked as part of an industry coalition for several years to come up with an an industry standard of transparency to actually enable ad networks like its to release all of the publishers, the sellers, the ad sellers it works with. And so this standard came out a few years ago and Google's competitors basically released their lists and maintained these lists. And Google was sort of like, you know what? No. And so so you can't actually know all the websites and apps at any given time where your ads might appear and who Google is working with and paying money to. And this is unique in the industry. There is no other ad network of a anywhere approaching a similar size that allows its publisher partners to be confidential as Google lists it. And so one of the things that we set out as our goal for last year was, can we de-anonymize Google's secret publisher partner list? I mean, we know that like ProPublica is part of it. We know the New York Times is part of it because there is a percentage, you know, roughly 20 some percentage that actually do list themselves publicly and are publicly acknowledged. But, you know, then there's millions of more sites and apps that you don't actually, the only way you can know that they're in there is if you buy ads on Google and suddenly they show up in your report of where your ads appear. And that can be a problem because your ads can show up in some pretty awful places. And so we decided to see if we could actually de-anonymize this list and make it more transparent and understand what's in there and why perhaps, you know, Google might not be so eager to disclose that. 
You write that ProPublica spent months trying to crack open Google's black box ad business. We wrote thousands of lines of code to scan more than 7 million website domains looking for Google ad activity, sourced and analyzed data on millions more domains from more than half a dozen data partners, spoke to some of the most knowledgeable experts about Google's display ad business, and you were able to match 70% of the accounts in Google's ad seller list. Apparently the largest data set that's ever been produced by an external party, perhaps more insight than anyone's ever had on Google's ad business. Yeah, and yet we we didn't get to 100, did we? And we looking back in the spring, we were foolishly thinking, you know, we'll de-anonymize it. We'll do a large scale analysis of the 100% and we'll really get more insight. And it became clear to us as we were a few months into it, ah, this is really hard. And, you know, it's hard for a few reasons. One is just, again, the scale of it. Two, the fact that Google conceals it. And so you're sort of, you know, pawing around in the dark. And three, also because it changes on a really regular basis. Like Google does actually release these sort of unique IDs for each publisher account, but it won't tell you what apps and, and websites those accounts are linked to. But we can see, for example, that on a you know weekly basis, Google might remove 5,000 of these unique account IDs and then you know add another 3,000 more in. So they're basically saying, well, we've we've created you know, or activated 5,000 new publisher partners, we've removed 3,000. We're not going to tell you what sites and apps they might own, but these are these are people we're, we're working with. And they're just anonymous strings of letters and numbers. And so we could see that Google was apparently changing the makeup of its publisher partner structure, but we wouldn't know what sites and apps were part of that. And so in the end, 70% is the highest that anyone has ever gotten on that. Um, but everyone that we went to to sort of see if they would share data and talk about it, really underscored how difficult it was. And, and this is something that we encountered even on what would seem like an even more simple task was we built a tool where we could scan a web page and determine with a high degree of certainty whether Google ads were kind of active on that page, which sounds like a really simple thing. But again, it's deceptively uh, complicated because there are any number of kind of network requests and other things that could result in a Google ad showing up on a page. And so that process also took longer, um, but we did get to the point where we were able to scan, you know, millions of domains and be able to determine whether there was an active Google monetizing relationship going on at the moment we scanned it. And that helped us fill in the blanks because then we could also match those ad requests to the unique ID. And that's, that's how we sort of worked on it. And we came across really surprising, strange things. For example, like a network of dozens and potentially hundreds of manga piracy sites. So like Japanese comics piracy sites that do an astonishing amount of traffic and that Google in some cases is directly placing ads on them in clear violation of its own policies against helping monetize copyright infringing material. And so I had no idea manga piracy was such a massive problem. And yet, you know, when we started to dig into Google's network, we see that Google is, is one of the key monetization partners for these sites. Doesn't just stop with manga, though. You find other evidence of impacts of this model, uh, porn, fraud. Uh, you even kind of get on to sanctioned websites or you know websites that potentially um, are in countries like Russia, where Google is meant not to be doing business in some in some respects. There were two stories that ended up kind of touching on on sanctions, and so. You know, the first one I'll talk about is we, we did this this large scale analysis working with fact checkers on different continents uh, in countries on different continents around the world, because we wanted to see how common Google ads were on material that was clearly 
fact-checked as marked false. And that also was highly likely to violate Google's rules against you know, health disinformation, against climate disinformation, against content that undermines democracy and electoral process. And so we worked with partners in Bosnia, Turkey, um, a few countries in uh, Southern Africa, uh, countries in South America, and we got data sets from fact checkers and then we're able to use our tool to scan these articles and these websites to see if Google was monetizing them and that nobody had ever sort of done that type of analysis before. And what we found, for example, when we worked with a group of fact checkers in a few countries uh, in the Balkans was that there was a site, a Bosnian site that was connected to the family of a kind of genocide denying separatist leader in Bosnia. And this was a website that had specifically been sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. And this figure, he was also sanctioned by the U.K. government because he's basically seen as trying to break up, you know, these sort of uh, the Dayton peace accords uh, that had ended the war in Bosnia. And what we found was Google was placing ads from major brands, guests and other luxury brands and recognized brands on this guy's this this website affiliated with him and his family. Uh, so Google removed those ads as soon as we kind of alerted them to it. But it shows you the kinds of things that can slip through the cracks. And not only was that a, a sanction concern, um, we also did a story working with a, a researcher who runs a company called Adalytics, who does great work in analyzing uh, digital ads. And we showed that Google was continuing to send data related to kind of ad bids. So the buying and selling of ads that, you know, somebody will say, hey, I've got ads available on my website. Here's the type of user. Do you want to show them an ad? That's called bitstream data. And Google continued to send huge amounts of bitstream data to this sanctioned Russian company that's owned by a major sanctioned Russian bank. And that potentially among that data would have been information about people in Ukraine. And it could have opened up if, for example, Russian intelligence services had gone after that data. We have no idea whether they did or not, but it created a risk that it could have helped fill in some of the picture uh, for Russian intelligence and military services. And so Google seems to have really failed very poorly around enforcing particularly Russian sanctions since the invasion of Ukraine almost a year ago. And this has been documented not just by us, but by other people as well. And Google's response to that is to basically say, we do our best to comply with sanctions. They don't get into specifics. And that's one of the areas where they will not really engage with you much. And I have uh, seen, of course, in your article here, you know, you really travel the world. You talk about uh, the impact of, of this model and this phenomenon in Brazil, of course, in uh, Eastern Europe and, and then the Balkans, uh, really just across the, across the planet. Are you able to make a judgment about how many millions or billions of dollars we're talking about here that are flowing to this sort of black box network? I mean, the company tells you uh, in response to the most recent article that you know, upwards of 70% of it of the business is essentially going to publishers that do disclose, right? Yes, that's one of the responses Google had is that the vast majority of the money flowing through that its ad network is going to publishers that are not confidential, that you know, you can look up and see who they are. And but they won't they won't actually give specifics on that. So it is a case where you have to take Google's word for it. You know, similarly with the manga piracy sites, you know, Google's spokesman didn't say this, but a Google engineer on Twitter engaging with people said, you know, the traffic related to these confidential sites, whether it's manga piracy or whatever, is very small, you know, in terms of the actual ads being placed. And so that's what Google's line on it is. On the one hand, it's saying there is no connection between confidentiality and bad actors. It's also saying, but listen, just so you know, this confidential stuff, it's a tiny amount. 
And so they're sort of saying like, well, number one, you have nothing to worry about. But number two, just so you know, like you have extra nothing to worry about. But we we still have all these confidential sites, even though there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and they didn't really give an answer as to why to this day they couldn't have made more progress than when they were last called out on this two years ago. You know, they say there's potential privacy concerns and all that, but literally no other ad network has cited that. And so I think, you know, this is a familiar piece of territory, you know, for you and I'm sure for some of your listeners of, you know, the tech companies, they they have the data, it's there, they could pull it, they're not sharing it. And of all of the areas of lack of transparency, where there are many but where we have made some of the least amount of progress, I would argue, is in programmatic advertising. You, you have Facebook, for example, has started to make political ads archived and available. Uh, Google has started to make some ads sort of searchable. But in terms of actually getting data about where money is flowing, which is the core of your question, who is getting money? Who is part of these networks? How much are they being paid? There is no transparency, almost no transparency around that. And so we are not able to estimate how much the confidential uh, sites get because we have to rely on only Google's general sort of numbers. And when it came to our investigation into Google funding, some of the worst sources of disinformation in these different countries around the world, you know, we, we can't estimate how much money these sites make, even though some of them told us Google is you know, one of their main sources of revenue. Because digital ads are so complicated. You know, an ad placed today on an article shown to me, you could load that same article in your web browser and you're, you might get a different priced ad. And so it is dynamic. It is based on real-time auctions. This data is flowing constantly around the world through many different systems. Not only does Google run its own ad exchanges connecting buyers and sellers, but other people's ad exchanges also run through Google. And that's how all these gun ads flow through Google's uh, systems, even though it says it doesn't take gun ads. And so at the end of the day, you know, we talk about it being a black box ad empire because there is just so much that, that we are unable to see and that anyone working outside Google is unable to see. And it's astounding to me that brands are spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on systems where there is a really alarming degree of fraud, where they don't have any assurance, really, if they're relying on Google to place their ads, which a lot of them do, on where their ads might end up and, and how bad those sites and apps might be, and where at least 15% of the money is, is untraceable. For an independent industry uh, study that was done a few years ago, they literally could not trace 15% of where the money went in app buys. So I think of all the systems that are that we are interacting with as consumers around the world, the digital programmatic ad systems are the biggest of all the black boxes, the craziest because of all the money that flows in and nobody knows where it goes and has the highest potential risk for funding organized crime and lots of terrible things, but we can't actually put our finger on it and prove it because it is so opaque and difficult to track. I just want to kind of pause on the story about, uh, you know, guns for just a moment. Um, you know, you point out, of course, that, that Google has for most of its existence claimed that it doesn't accept gun ads, uh, but your analysis, again, you found, 15 of the largest firearm sellers in the United States. Um, this is everybody from Daniel Defense, the company that makes the AR-15, uh, on through to many others are essentially running Google ads and that the sites that are accepting those ads, of course, are making money from that as well. Just kind of extraordinary. I mean, I, I suppose I should ask you, you know, because you are, what was it? What was Joan's term? Was it grandpa disinfo? 
Um, Grandpa December. I don't know why I'm helping popularize that. This is like this is Streisand effect. Uh, okay, I should maybe, maybe we'll avoid trying to popularize it. But because you do have a kind of you know years long purview on this, you mention of course concerns raised, letters written by uh, Senator mm. Mark Warner, for instance. Where's where is Congress on this? Where is any kind of legislative recourse to this these problems? Well, this is this is one of the things that is uh, different now. If you had asked me this uh, a couple of years ago, I would say they're nowhere. Aside from Warner and a few others occasionally sending a letter to the FTC or calling on Google or whatever, there was nothing. As you well know, technology regulation, big tech regulation is one of the few potentially bipartisan areas right now uh, in Congress. And there are touch points of bipartisanship, but they have very different, you know, the two parties have very different goals and perceptions of why big tech needs to be regulated, except they agree that it's too powerful, but for different reasons and different outcomes. And so um, Senator Mike Lee has proposed legislation around digital advertising, Senator Klobuchar. So we've got a Republican and a Democrat. Um, both of them have shown interest in regulating digital advertising. Mark Warner has had a longstanding interest and Schumer actually had a, an interest years ago in concerns around digital advertising fraud. And so Congress, it has been trying to come up with legislative approaches to digital advertising. And one of the guiding principles um, that's out there in some of these legislative proposals is the idea that you should regulate programmatic advertising the way you do financial markets, which I think is a really interesting idea because you do have this scenario of exchanges of buyers and sellers coming together and it's supposed to create you know, the fairest possible model. But what happens is that in programmatic digital advertising, Google has, if you pick every piece of the stack of the tools and platforms people need for buying ads and selling ads, and if you look at the exchange element of where they meet to, to you know, make that purchase or sale, Google is basically the dominant player in all of them to different degrees. But taken as a whole, there is a concern about Google's monopoly in digital advertising that is animating Congress as well. And so one of the things that they want to do is mandate elements of transparency and control so that Google is not able to potentially you know, uh, pollute or otherwise um, make these auctions less than fair. And there have been, you know, independent cases alleging Google is doing that. But as of right now, you know, Congress has a desire. But I really at this point, I mean, on the day we're speaking, uh, it's a gong show of who's going to be Speaker of the House. Uh, the Senate is clear. But are we going to see any legislation happen? You know, that's that's really not my area of expertise. But I think there's a desire. But is it? I, it's hard to say whether this is the type of big tech stuff that goes to the top of the agenda. I think it's also just really hard at this point to discern how many events that we're seeing in the world are driven by the dynamics that you're reporting on. I mean, to some extent, I mean, I've just finished reading the January 6th committee's report and talking with some of the people that did the social media aspect of that investigation. Hmm. And, you know, one of the things that's very clear is that, you know, there are a lot of people uh, making money on the big lie uh, that Donald Trump, uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Um, and of course, you know, all of that is sort of powered by and monetized by this sort of ad tech ecosystem that allows individuals that are able to draw attention to their claims and their websites uh, to essentially earn money from it. And a lot of that's running straight through Google. So, I mean, that's just one example that occurs to me. You've obviously reported on and offered so many others 
but it's beginning to be difficult to sort of discern, you know, what in the real world is disinformation and what's just grift and, you know, how much of, of those things are sort of swirling around uh, in, a, in a pot together. Yeah. And you often will see people realizing, well, I, you know, I genuinely believe the election was stolen and now I'm going to build a, an infrastructure around it and monetization and funding is going to be a key part of that. And so whether they're coming at it genuinely and, you know, trying to sort of figure out how they create a sustainable operation or a business around their views, or they're looking at it and saying like, man, there are, there are some suckers to be had here. How do I target the suckers and extract money from the suckers, you know, whether it's indirectly through their attention placing ads or directly through e-commerce? This is, this is a key piece. I mean, it's an old adage, but, you know, following the money is really important. And, the reality is that when it comes to people making money through digital ads, Google has for a long time been sort of the, the, the main kind of checkbook there. If you can get your, your sites into Google's network, you're going to earn more money than if you're on some of the other lower uh, lower paying junky ones who will have a lower standard than Google. It's not that Google has no standards. What I think we've really shown is that Google operates its ad business and it's ad tech at a scale that it is unable to manage and unable to effectively enforce the policies it says it has, which again, sounds like a familiar refrain, you know, insert the company, insert the, the thing when it comes to big tech. But in this case, you know, it's a very clear problem, which is because it results in money. It results in funding to some of the, you know, these worst actors around the world. That's why we wanted to go global and like get out of the U.S. mindset and show that, in fragile democracies in the Balkans, some of the absolute worst offender websites, some of the places, you know, in that one case, you know, this this genocide denying separatist politician trying to kind of tear the country apart, you know, this TV station connected to his family is, is making money from Google. And, you know, Google talks about how it creates economic opportunity for people around the world by enabling them to get ads through Google, which is true. If you're a really small publisher and you can get into Google's ad network, that's a great opportunity. But if Google is going to operate in these countries, it has to have oversight. And what, what I think we showed in that, that disinformation investigation is that Google is operating in these countries. It is a major funder of some of the worst actors. And Google does not have the oversight in the language of the country to actually do the job. Uh, and we spoke to a sort of former Google leader with insight in this area who talked about, well, you know, imagine you're the country manager for Serbia how much is it going to cost you to train up a whole team of content reviewers in your language? And how much money is your country generating versus how much would that, you know, big oversight operation cost? And it's like, well, all of a sudden you're going to run your country at a loss and Google's going to be like, what the hell's going on there? And so I think the money piece is really important. And it's astounding to me how overlooked the digital ad ecosystem is as the key funder of this. Uh, and I, I just hope I feel like I've been banging my head against the wall for like five or six years on this. I really think other journalists and just the world in general needs to pay more attention to ad tech and to the funding of this stuff. And also to the fact that just, you know, tens of billions of dollars disappears every year into a black hole and nobody knows who gets that money. Like, how is that a business? How is that something that, that is digital advertising? It blows my mind. Well, I know that you will continue to be on this beat, and I will point out to my listeners that at the bottom of all your stories, uh, there is a place where individuals who may have information that could be useful to your investigation can get in touch. But at the bottom of the uh, article uh, on gun ads in particular, there is an entire survey uh, where you invite individuals who may have information uh, about Google's ad business uh, and you know these issues in particular 
uh, to get in touch and provide encrypted options as well. So if there's anybody listening to this that I suppose wants to give uh, Grandpa Disinfo his next uh, tip, uh, you'll, you'll know where to reach out. It's always appreciated. Uh, my Twitter DMs are open and uh, and I am on Signal, which you can find from my bio page on ProPublica. Always interested in hearing from people, even if you don't have something you think is super interesting or revelatory, always happy to hear from people who have knowledge and interest in this area. Uh, I struggle to break through and get these stories to be readable for the average person. And so if folks you know want to take time and read them and have thoughts to share, always happy to hear about that as well. Craig, thank you for speaking to me about all of these articles. And again, thank you for sharing you know, your methods and your tools in the way that you work with this community, um, having sat in some of those sessions and having you know, had you obviously speak to my students in the past. I'm very grateful to you for that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think I lose anything by sharing you know, new tools and approaches that I come across. And I think there's a great community of, of journalists and other folks, researchers, who are pushing the field of digital investigations. And, uh, and it's one that I think is open to everybody. You don't need to be a journalist. There's lots of great people in academia, um, in think tanks, and just amateur folks noodling around doing interesting investigative work. So I, you know, I think it's a, a great team effort and we always win by sharing what we know. So I'm happy to do it and always happy to learn from others. Thank you, sir, and happy new year. Thank you, same to you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.